Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Dr. Shelley Viola Murphy. She is an educator, author, and lauded professional genealogist and researcher. Dr. Murphy is a descendant project researcher at University of Virginia, Charlottesville. One of her current projects is to find the descendants of the enslaved laborers who built the University of Virginia. I'm joined by 17 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins. I grew up in the Boston area, Irish mostly. Harvard 63, Navy 20 years, working for industry for a while. <clears throat> Retired in Aiken, South Carolina with my wife. Been here a number of years, and it's nice and warm here. Getting to be uh, 86 in the high today, it says. Thanks. Oh, wow. Nice. What is this? <laughs> Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston now, uh, Medfield, Mass., uh, class of 63 at Harvard with these guys, uh, Harvard Business School, India Peace Corps for a couple of years, and then back to Boston and uh, trusts and investments, that sort of thing. Uh, I was an only child. I married a woman who had uh, was one of eight with 25 first cousins. And then going beyond that, they have a book that's about an inch and a half thick <clears throat> tracing the genealogy. And uh, I felt like I uh, married into Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, same class. Uh, grew up in the East Coast, now live just south of San Francisco. Uh, 23 and me says that I am pretty much uh, English uh, ancestor. Oh. Um, and my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. Okay, Jerry. Morning. I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., live in Pasadena, California, lawyer, a couple years in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, uh, worked for the Department of Justice, worked for an oil company, worked for the state government. <clears throat> And have two friends who have did DNA testing and found out they had kids they didn't know about. So I'm afraid to do it. <laughs> I don't Peter. blame you. Peter. Yeah, I'm I'm an editor and writer. I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire. To show how narrow it is up here, I'm I live five minutes from Vermont, 30 minutes from Maine, and 40 minutes from Canada. And uh, af after Harvard, I, I, w I joined SNCC down in Georgia, and I keep going back to Georgia to see friends. So I, I have a, quite a connection to Georgia as well. And speaking of genealogy, um, on my dad's side, <clears throat> I'm Russian. And uh, he was born in St. Petersburg. And... Uh, hmm came over here at the time of the revolution. But these days I find out that actually the family tells me I'm mostly Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. John. Hey, um, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan here, class of 63, editor, writer. And I wondered whether, you know, there was a big article in the London Review of Books, Thomas LeCur on, it's called the, the Pocahontas Exception, and it's on America's fascination 
with genealogy and goes in quite into depth with the weaknesses and strengths of the DNA obsession and, and its accuracy or inaccuracies. It's, just, it's in March, March, March. Uh, London Review of Books. Okay, all right. Doug. Uh, hi, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, although I've lived in many places around the world. I've had careers in clinical medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, and uh, behavioral ecology. Uh, I grew up in, uh, in, in Houston, so I've always considered myself to be a Texan, even though most of my life after high school, I have not lived in Texas. Okay, George. George Jones, class of 63, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and currently fighting off an upper respiratory infection. Oh. My genealogical activities at this point are confined to constructing phylogenetic trees from protein sequences. Jeff. do it. Oh, hi. Uh, Jeff Fox, uh, also class of 63, right after Harvard uh, community organizing work in uh, in very poor working class neighborhoods of Caracas, Venezuela, and then uh, got into sociology with uh, many years working mostly on Latin America. And I'm now living in Spain and writing fiction. Okay, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> in, I, in, I run a campaign in the Soap and Rivers Project and Archives Project in New York City. And I've been in the trenches for many decades in the real world, um, trying to get fairer, wiser public spending priorities. And it's hard. <laughs> All right, okay. uh, Susan. Rochester, New York, class of 63-2, and uh, retired public library director who's now deeply engaged in local democratic politics. Okay, Hamp. Hamp Howell, Nashville, Tennessee, class of, of 63, lived in Roxbury for three years after graduation. Uh, I've lived in Brazil and Puerto Rico, and I'm a clinical psychologist. Okay, David Othmer. Uh, also a class of 63, grew up in South America and Central America. And after my, my professional career has been in public broadcasting, first at WNET in New York City, and now recently in uh, at WHYY in Philadelphia, where Maureen and I live. Okay, and Dorothy. Hi, sorry, I'm not on video today, uh, but happy to be here. Uh, class of 63, Boston area, Belmont, Massachusetts, after graduating, joined the Harlem Action Group and stayed in Harlem for the next 24 years and spent my life in the nonprofit sector, creating opportunities for low-income young people who left high school without a diploma to build affordable housing in their neighborhoods all over the country and all over the world. And as for my genealogy, uh, my father's side of the family came from the Ukraine, escaping the uh, pogroms. My mother's side of the family came from Germany, and they were uh, openly anti-Semitic. So my mother was disowned when she married my father. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to grow up thinking, uh, no point in being German. They get, they kill the Jews. No point in being Jewish. 
They get killed by the Germans, so I'm just a human being. And that became my identity, and my mother raised us as Unitarians. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good. And Dr. Murphy, welcome. Thank you for coming on, and uh, nice to see you. Tell us about your work, your life, and genealogy. Well, I have pretty much a boring life, but first, thank you for having me. And um, I, I gave a thumbs up on the Michigan because I was born and raised in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So that is basically home and pretty much. But um, in, and I'm going to comment to Dorothy. Uh, Dorothy, I retired December 2018 from that affordable housing field. So that was that other life, real estate, affordable housing, HUD, foreclosures, housing yeah. discrimination, classes, <laughs> just say all of that gamut. And um, But I've been doing genealogy pretty much, it's well over 30 years now, started helping my mother. She uh, made a comment that, um, you know, her grandfather, grandmother, great-grandfather was a slave. And it was like, what? What does that mean? Wait, I, I don't understand. We had slaves in the family. So I started helping her. And she's still with us. She's in, actually in the other room, 92 going on 93. So her questions and trying to remember stories and things that her mother, grandmother and mother, told her through oral history, got her going. The internet wasn't, I'm going to say, as active as it is now back then. My husband and I at the time were overseas and, well, not overseas, in Hawaii. And um, he was Air Force. And so I tried to start, you know, helping her and, and things like that. And so just a side note, uh, my dad was a realtor had his own office, never exposed mom to carbon copy. So anytime she requested a document, and I'm talking about say the early eighties, um, she wrote two letters for the request to have a copy. And here he has an office. And so she still has every letter that she wrote and requested for a birth, death, or marriage on somebody she remembered her grandmother telling her. And I asked my dad before he died, why did you not mention about the old carbon copy paper and stuff? He said, nobody ever asked me. <laughs> so we'll leave that alone. But I am the only daughter. I have four brothers. Three of them are still living. And so pretty much grew up, you know, um, I'm going to say it this way. My dad, and I can remember him grabbing me, I'm, I'm, I'm five foot, grabbing me and said, just because you're little and you're a girl doesn't mean you can't do the same things those boys are doing. You have to stay two steps ahead of them. So that's my personality. That's <laughs> my, my drive that keeps me going because I remember that hand grabbing me up because I was crying about something. And he planted a seed there a very long time. So a lot of competition things in the family with those four boys in the same mother. So um, I actually dropped out of high school and, you know, wanted to go in the Army, Vietnam time, and didn't pass the GED test. Mm. And so Miss Smarty Pants had to go back and to finish a couple classes 
to get that <laughs> high school diploma. And so my goal was always to go to school. And again, married a military man and we were all over. So got plenty of colleges in the back. <laughs> you know, every base we were at, I went to school. So I finally did achieve receiving a bachelor's degree after 28 years, trying, <laughs> then went for the master's and then went for the doctorate. And thank goodness the online programs came on that time because I worked for local government and the time frame at Florida State is where I was at. Um, I just couldn't make it through, you know, five days a week working full time and then trying to go to school. So I actually went online. So that's enough on the education. I received a phone call after I retired. I had been to a few community meetings. The University of Virginia had community meetings about a possible memorial to the enslaved laborers. And so, again, we had a genealogy group. I was very active in the group and just keeping up with what was going on in the community. And so, again, I retired December 2018, got on the list, getting a check. And then I received a phone call in July 2019, basically saying, what are you doing? How are you doing? You know, and so forth. And they had this project going on and they they said my name kept coming up. And um, as far as someone to do the research. So they hired me, the University of Virginia hired me to be the descendant project researcher. My goal is to find descendants of the enslaved laborers that basically built that university starting back from, and I'm going to say Thomas Jefferson, I was going to say TJ, but Thomas Jefferson's time. And I'm about five or six miles from Monticello, where I'm at now in the rural county of Fluvanna County. So that's, you know, coming home from Charlottesville, I'm passing Monticello all the time. So um, I knew there were going to be challenges. And this pro this whole project kind of um, got started from the students. Um, it really was led by the students. Basically, um, you know, the Brown University came out with a report about studying, you know, the university's affiliation with slavery and the history and some other schools that came out. And so UVA under Dr. Marcus Martin and Kurt Van Deck led a commission on slavery. At the time, President Teresa Sullivan initiated and said, go forth, find this information out. And they came back with a final report. And I think believe that was in 2013 is when they were kicking off this uh, committee to do the study on slavery. So coming back to me, um, one of the things I do want to say, and and they started a consortium also. So there is universities studying slavery. And I believe right now there's probably over a hundred members. They do two symposiums a year and they go out to different universities where they host these uh, symposium. I partner a lot with William and Mary and uh, Dr. Juwan Johnson. He's doing pretty much the same thing I'm doing at UVA. So we partner on a lot of things, how we're looking for information, how we can educate people on the information. I have a lot of teaching background in genealogy. And so I'm pretty much known throughout the genealogy community 
And so again, continued with those community meetings. So I was a little bit up on what they were planning. And of course the design is done and they opened up the first opened uh, was in April, 2021, basically. And then COVID hit. So I've been working pretty much re remote as a genealogist rather than sitting on the grounds at UVA because of the research online and throughout the local area. I knew there were gonna be challenges. And, and, and again, I'll take any questions. My focus is really from 1817 to freedom or say to 1870. And mm -hmm. so what the system is, is that people enslaved labor or the enslaved were rented to the university. Thomas Jefferson basically had a rule that the students couldn't bring their slaves with them. But the professors and then other local area plantations, the slaveholders and things, they were able to rent to the university for the labor. They put up this beautiful memorial and they had community input. And I'm gonna just say that's number one. The community had total input, not just the black community, but the community of Charlottesville and the area attended these meetings. They were very active and even on the design and, and everything about it. So it worked. And um, I conduct genealogy basically, and I hope they're not listening seven days a week. That's my passion. And, uh, you know, even though I'm hired and I'm an employee, that's just a cycle of going. I have my mental breaks because, you know, it's an emotional side to doing this type of research as well. And so, so far, I built a database on ancestry called the Descendants of Enslaved Laborers, got the slaveholders and the enslaved. And I was given a list. And that list was created from the financial records. And again, starting from 1817, and I believe Thomas Jefferson is the first one on the list where two of his servants, as they're identified, were sent to the grounds there for, for labor. And um, some of the financial records actually disclose the name, first name, first and last name, the majority are first name only. And again, the local plantation owners, and I also want to say a lot of them friends of Thomas Jefferson, Madison, James Barber, a former governor of Virginia, and so forth. So you're talking about central Virginia counties, and I narrowed my research down to eight counties. And I, you know, setting my, my parameters, because not knowing where this is going, it, you know, or how big this was going to be. They projected about 4,000 names could go up on that memorial. Right now we're at uh, 600 and some names that are there of the enslaved laborers that have been identified. And I'm probably close to about 75 to 100 descendants. So my job is interacting with the descendants. If you think you have connections to Albemarle County, Louisa, Fluvanna, Bar uh, Buckingham, uh, Orange County, in those areas, even Culpeper in Nelson County, that's kind of that central area where I clued in because I thought I would be out of control if I did, didn't center my approach. 
And so I went with what I knew. And it's a little different than just researching for my own family, even though I found my own family as one of the slaveholders who actually rented three people to the university. And that just came up a year ago. And it was like, I kept looking at that name and looking at that name and I thought, no way, no way, <laughs> you know, and stuff. And so got into it and um, yep, there was a third great grandfather third great grandmother was the house servant. So that's also a whole nother story there. But anyway, so I focused again, that was really critical for me was to make sure I'd lock down this area. So any outreach that I would do would go to those counties. What I'm finding besides the normal challenges that come up um, with African-American ancestry, that all of these folks connect and everybody in these counties connect. And because um, all it takes is a brother or a sister or one person to step into another county and start a line. And, and so the challenge is looking at, and I'm hoping one of these days I can get a map done because the connections from county to county, not, to, not necessarily the slaveholder, but the enslaved in these communities, the families are connecting. And, and one of the biggest challenges, and I was doing this about a year, and say I had an example of Aaron on my spreadsheet, but I saw Aaron four different times, four oh. different dates, and different people that rented an Aaron. And he was a laborer. <clears throat> and um, in order for me to figure this out, I charted it out and I said, wait, am I dealing with four errands or am I dealing with one? And I didn't have a location because my list doesn't give me a locations, right? So it figured out once I researched the slaveholders, they were connected. It ended up being one errand and he basically was just passed from brother-in-law, you know, and, and things like that, that also rented him. The enslaved laborers could be rented for a couple months or they could be rented for a year to the university. These folks were skilled laborers. I mean, skilled, we're talking about blacksmiths, brick makers, carpenters. You know, we also had the general laborers. You also had the cooks and, and the washer people and this, that, and the other. But the understanding and the beauty of that memorial was the fact that UVA put up names and they also put up titles of occupations that these folks did and identified them. So when people come to the memorial, they're seeing people, not just that word, that's a slave. You know, they're seeing, you know, Jim Henderson, laborer, and whatever it was he did, if it doesn't say just labor. But, you know, they also see the word grandfather, son of, you know, whatever information they had. And I think that's another beauty about what they did. Number one, the community. And number two, we're not just looking at a list of people's names, first name only or with a surname. And um, so people can relate. And so, again, the challenges are the normal genealogical challenges with African-American research. And if there's, you know, I can go through those. Um, and I'm sure most of you know, 
but those are critical but it's also mm. one of the things i teach at an institute which is the midwest african-american genealogy institute is methods and strategies and so there needs to be methods and strategies to figure this out when i have just a first name and i might have a slaveholder's name but i don't know where he's at number one so that until i can figure out where is the slaveholder at where's the plantation and then find his information. I have to come forward to find out when he died. Was there a bill of sale? Was there inventories? Was there an appraisement done? Does he have any public records of will that I can find this in a state settlement? So those are kind of some of the documents that I'm looking at. Hmm. And I had to change my strategy coming through here because when I first started out, I was starting at the beginning of a list, 1870, Thomas Jefferson, got it. And then I thought, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? And I was working with a dis potential descendant at the time. And I said, this is crazy. I'm doing this backwards. Go to after the Civil War, Shelley, and start there on the list and work back because I could build more connections and get names and try to see where all these people are coming from. And, and one of the big things I stress a lot for this type of research, especially African-American research, you have to search the European slaveholder, white, who, whatever you wanna call them. African-Americans cannot just go follow African-American line. If you're going to hit back in the slave era time, you're going to have to research who's in that community, who's around where your person is at. Nine times out of 10, it's going to be a white family or it's some association to the white family. And, and that's the biggest thing. And I say, everything you want to know about an African-American, you're going to have to research that white American as well. And so again, with that knowledge, then I'm able to build from the slaveholder to get to the enslaved person that they might have owned. And then, of course, if there's sales, any public records, because I will say one thing. The African-Americans that were enslaved did not make the laws. They might be part of the law, but they're also not the record keeper. So we have to center for doing this. And I'm saying this for people that uh, might be listening as a genealogist. You're going to have to track that white family, that slaveholding family, or just who's in the neighborhood, who's in the community, in order to try to piece this together like a puzzle. There will be connections, but we don't hold the records as in African-Americans. I'm a descendant of a slaveholder, several, and also of enslaved several as well. And again, where's the record? So you also got to know where to go find this information at, be it at the local level. Well, how did you, you get a question? Go how, ahead. how did you get the number of uh, 4,000? And what, what did they actually build? I don't know UVA at all. I mean, how many buildings and that sort of? They built everything that's basically that's on that grounds, designed by Thomas Jefferson. And um, so they had like hotels, which, you know, where the students were at and they had the rotunda, you know, all of those places, very significant. And the majority of that stuff is still standing. And a lot of it, if you know anything on Thomas Jefferson, there's going to be brick and there's going to be columns. And that's what he apparently comes back from France 
with the columns. And just like he built Monticello, I guess what, 30, 40 years it took him. And I don't even know if he finally finished it, but because he kept changing the plans. But you've got all your typical buildings and museums on the grounds. And UVA or Thomas Jefferson rever uh, refers to the campus as grounds. So that's why you hear me saying grounds versus campus. And I'm from Michigan, it's campus, <laughs> you know, but for Virginia, it's grounds. And so you have all these very distinctive <laughs> buildings that are still standing, even a church, you know, a, a chapel that's there, the libraries and things. And so the 4,000 came from the research and all of this was done prior to me even having a place, you know, or even on the, the glimmer of being the researcher. So they were adding up the financial records because remember, professors could bring their enslaved to those grounds. The students could not. And then you had the, the conflict with the students and the enslaved, you know, the professors and their enslaved people. It's either the normal, like, it's almost like the, the grounds were a plantation because you're talking about all the laborers that are going on. Arthur Spicer Brockenbrough was the overseer of the construction. He also rented people uh, to, you know, UVA as well. And in the list, and I can share a picture if you want to see a picture of my list to see what I'm dealing uh. with, I, I'd be happy to share it with you. So you're seeing a screen and, and I'm just at 1848. So what they had done in compliments to the researchers that compiled this is that they've got the year that the person was rented. If there is a slaveholder's name, and I'll show you some that's got some, and if the identity of the enslaved person or the laborer is there, what their status were they enslaved or were they free? Whatever they were doing, there's your bricklaying. This mm -hmm. is the documents in the financial records. And there's the money that was exchanging the hands. So this is put together and this is my list. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I worked from. And so you can see here's Benjamin Mosley, 1849. He rented Abraham and he was a bricklayer. So for me mm -hmm. as the researcher, I'm going to go research Benjamin Mosley. And then I'm going to also try to find a tree on Abraham. So one of the myths that's out there on genie with the genealogy world is that the enslaved people took the slaveholder's name. That is not true. It's a low percentage. I think family search um, comments on their website, only about 15% took the slaveholder's name. During colonial times, it's more likely that you would have saw someone that was enslaved to take on the slaveholder's name. But also doing African-American research, those names, surnames actually don't mean anything because they change. They can change from owner to owner. They can change when they become free. They can change before or after the Civil War. They can change when they get to the federal population census of 1870. Now, 
the other strategy that we use a lot for this time frame and for researching is the fact that I know there's the Freedmen Bureau that set up and, and opened up in March of 1865. That is a record collection, 3.5 million. It's on Family Search, it's on Ancestry, it's also at the National Archives. But what you're seeing there is what happened right after the Civil War. And the proper name is called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. Well, let me tell you, the refugees are white people. This is a federal collection, and they open up field offices throughout the South. And so field offices was like set up for like, a, I think of it like a social services um, type place. People could go get assisted. So what Lincoln and the military set up, because the military ran these field offices. And so what you have is they could go in there and get rations, as in food. They could get transportation money or get transportation provided. So you think, okay, why would someone yeah. formerly enslaved need transportation? I walk up and I say, my husband is Kent Garrett, and him and my two boys got sold to Mississippi with this gentleman. So that field office, say in Virginia, is going to contact the field office in Mississippi and try to find those the husband and the boys. And then they will provide transportation for me to go to Mississippi to reunite with my family. And why, why are they doing that? That's the federal government um, handling the millions of people that are now that are now free, free. that were formerly enslaved. And um, I don't know if I have anything else to add to that, just that they did it. Was it successful? Not really, but it helped a lot of people. And um, it helped a lot of people. And what we have in the records is basically names, ages possibly. They also legitimized marriages. <laughs> They had labor contracts. So nine times out of 10, you're going to see a labor contract between a former slaveholder and a former enslaved person, and it might identify that. So again, labor contracts were overseen by these field offices, legitimizing of marriages. You're going to get names, location, and um, the transportation uh, also, education. You've heard of the Freedmen schools that were set up and things like that. This is all this bureau from 1865 to 1872 that all of this stuff is going on. Think about the enslaved person that would have been on a plantation and never off of the plantation, and all of a sudden they're told they're free. What does that mean? What do I do? They don't know anything except for what's been around them. And I'm talking about throughout the South. I don't know how many field offices there is, but there is a, a website called Mapping the Freedmen's Bureau. And uh, it's an excellent site to go through. And you get all of the, the field offices are, are mapped. And you can click and it take you right into Family Search. And so the other thing is hospitalization was available. So rations, transportation, 
legitimizing of marriages. So again, this is where if you're searching for your family or you're researching for a client, you're getting names and location and, and also possible ages, but also relationships. A lot of times there were registries of the free Negroes or depending on what state you're looking at. Every state had a basis of these are the records they're supposed to do for the Freedmen's Bureau right after the war. <clears throat> now, Virginia is the only state that I know that the field offices are indexed. So when I mean by indexed, you can go in and search. Ancestry, you can go in and search and put a name and scroll down and see if people are there. So it did help a lot of people, but you got to know that the field offices struggled. They were understaffed. And then the violence and um, the, hun the unhappy feeling of the community where a field office is now helping these formerly enslaved people. You have the KKK, you have the white people that don't want that assistance to happen. So the field offices had a rough time. So what I did was set up trees on Ancestry. There's public trees and all of these folks run. It's well over 5,000 names that are in there now. And that will be the families. Because not only do I have to just look at Edward Smith, I've got to find out about Edward Smith's wife and their children. Because premise could have been mortgage, leased, um, gifted, to anybody in the family. So if I'm trying to track and come forward to find a descendant of him, I might not find a last name until the Freedmen's Bureau or the 1870 census or even later. So again, that's some of the challenges, first name only, common names like uh, Bob, you know, and stuff. And again, learning about who these slaveholders were and again, a lot of them are friends of Thomas Jefferson. A lot of them are professors that weren't even from here that could have came from some other place in Virginia or another state. But this is an overview of this original tree. There's over 5,000 folks on there. That's going to be the enslaved people and also the slaveholders and, of course, uh, children, generations, and the research. So I built these trees on them to be able to access what I could pull online. Because remember, COVID comes in. And so that kind of hampered me a bit from going out to the local county historical societies, public libraries, and any the libraries on the grounds at UVA and things. Because a lot of that stuff that first year or so basically closed. This is... Uh, Let's see if she'll open up. That's that same woman, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I was trying to open her picture up. Uh, let me see if I can get another window. Because she has a very uh, interesting Isabel Gibbons. There you go. And let's see if she comes up. Wiki tree. And do you see her picture now on the right? Well, yes. Well, yeah. we do. yes. Yeah. Okay. And so that's her. She was married to uh, William Gibbons. 
And she actually, I believe, and don't quote me on this, actually came from Monticello. And I'm not sure how she connects there and things, but she was one of the first teachers of color at the Freedman School, which is Jefferson School. Right now it's Jefferson um, School, Black Heritage Group School there, Jefferson Center. And, and again, they've got a genealogy room named after her. But mm-hmm. she wrote a letter. And this quote, I was trying to see if her quote was up here. Uh, I think her that's- eyes are on the corner of the memorial. And they have steps coming out of that shackle heading towards the north, towards freedom. And let me see. Here we go. Right here is her quote. And it's on the memorial through the timeline. And so I'd like to read if that's okay. And this is, again, she was enslaved labor, a cook, and of course becomes free and becomes a teacher. And she says, this is Isabella Gibbons. Can we forget the crack of the whip, cowhide? whipping posts, the auction block, the handcuffs, the manacles, the iron collar, the Negro trader tearing the young child from its mother's breast as a whelp from the lioness. Have we forgotten that by those horrible cruelties, hundreds of our race have been killed? No, we have not, nor ever will. This is going into the Jefferson School Heritage Center, and you'll see the quote there, and it's also on the memorial, and that's a picture of one of them. We have the Maupin family, which they actually came over from France, slaveholder, and their descendants. Two of the Maupin children were professors. One was a lawyer, and I think the other was a chemist chemistry professor at UVA and we have tracked through to the descendants of the enslaved laborers and so that's another person we have uh, pictures of and I was trying to think if I could get to the tree and well Shelly how much of your work is sort of confrontational actually I'm going to say Very little, very little. And and one of the things um, I, I've come to the table and, and I'm going to address this to slave owning descendants. You know, I explain what I'm doing because I reach out to them and I ask them and then I tell them specifically what I'm looking for. And do you have knowledge in this, that, and other? Only a couple times over the last couple of years has somebody said, we're not interested and we don't want to be involved. But I also want to make it clear for whoever's listening to this, nobody's going to back a truck up to your house and say, that's mine. That's not what descendants are looking for. Your family could have information about my family. And so we're looking to find out about the information, <clears throat> however you're willing to share it. So there's no threat or anything that anyone's looking for. And so again, how we approach, and my my way of saying, how best can I communicate with you? This is what my job is, what I'm looking for. And how would you like me to communicate with you? And would you like also to communicate with the possible descendants of information that your family held in slavery? 
Nick. Shelley, do you ever come across uh, oral histories that are passed down through families that far back? Sort of a Homeric story or a Homeric find? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of them, and what's surprising is a lot of people that live in, say, the local area or in the area I research might not have known that they had any affiliation with the university. But oral history could have said so-and-so worked there or so-and-so did something that was attached to UVA. And um, one of the Zoom calls, and, and I hope I don't start crying, but anyway, we had a, a family. I contacted these folks and I wanted to, you know, basically review what I had found and see if they had done anything and if it matched, because this is where I, it led me to the research. And so they had not gotten back as far. And I went back another two generations from where they were at. And a lot of their stuff was oral history that they were trying to piece together. And so the story about the grandfather, this, that, another, and then it went to a grandmother, second or third, if, if I remember right. And the clue for me was who was in the obituary. So I was able to track through the names listed in obituary of someone that died like 1980 or whatever it was, but it had the siblings and the parents and everyone listed mm. so I could backtrack. And again, they're telling me the stories that came through their generation, but they didn't know anything about UVA. And so that's what this is about, is that reconnecting and mm -hmm. sharing. And even in my own case, you know, I kept looking at this name and I've been looking for this, where the second great grandmother was born in Virginia, 25 years. Had yeah. no idea it was right in the next county where I'm at. And I'm of the belief that the ancestors guide me on this work too. Whosoever ancestors they are, you know, if things keep coming in front of me. I need to follow up on that. There's going to be something made, mm -hmm. you know. Um, how much of this uh, is online and how much of it do you have to go through uh, <laughs> dusty, dusty stacks and, and uh, uh, marching through graveyards and stuff like that? I love wearing a mask. I have no <laughs> problem wearing a mask. And, uh, you know, a lot of it, and, and I'm going to tell you, the immediate resources, especially during COVID, I had to rely more online, but I was able to communicate for who was still open. And again, that's your historical society, <clears throat> libraries, the resources that are on the grounds at the university. And I had a relationship with the historical societies in the area because I was board chair of Albemarle Charlottesville Historical Society at the time. So I had a connection with them and I'm saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Can I give a presentation and say, these are the people that I'm looking for? You know, the names that I found the slave owners and this, that, and other there. And so it's really just keep getting that word out. And, and we're, you know, making sure that people know where the information is at. And yes, it is online. It's on ancestry. And it's also on the descendants of enslaved communities. And that's another group that are of descendants, not just at UVA, but some of the area plantation. You got Mount Pilar that's right here. 
you got Highlands that's right here, you know, and then of course Monticello. So there's descendant groups associating with these historic homes and, and of course um, plantation owners. So networking with them as well. And there's different projects like the University of Virginia. I also look at what they call a Blandy, the Arboretum for the state is up, uh, you know, two hours from here. And that was a former plantation called the Tulare. So Joseph Tulare had enslaved people and all the connections there. So we're also looking for the descendants there. So that could, wherever it's going to morph into a memorial or, or education or whatever it is. And then there's Birdwood that was owned by the Garth family, if you're familiar with anybody in central Virginia. Garth is a very old colonial name. And so they're looking for the descendants and we're finding them. We're, we're, we are finding them, we're engaging with them, their oral history and whatever they might know helps with the research. Mm -hmm. Jeff. Well, I just wanted to hear something about the reactions of the people you talk to when they discover uh, some of these family relations that they didn't know about, that, that must have aroused very strong emotions, right? It does. It does. But you know what? That's what it's about. It's <laughs> that reconnecting. And you all are familiar as far as the history, the, the family separation, dislocation, you know, all of that, the violence and all of that. But one of uh, a filmmaker, a local filmmaker who is a descendant, Lorenzo Dickinson, his family was enslaved by this Maupin family. They're French uh, the Huguenots that came over this, that, and other. And um, on the, we added five names to the memorial, and one of them was a great, great grand uncle and uh, Garland Maupin. So that time, that enslaved took the last name Maupin, and uh, which was interesting. And this is this is how I get through this. He came with his boys on, you know, when they were unveiling. I think the boys are maybe eight and six. That made my day. They were at the memorial. I saw him standing there showing those boys the name up on that panel, you know, and then of course we got a picture of them. That's really what it's about is getting that generation to know, number one, the resilience, the survival. They were part of this beautiful campus that's in Albemarle County in Charlottesville and the history that goes around here, because they're going to hear that all their lives. They're in the Charlottesville area. They're going to hear that all their life, you know, but to know that their ancestor was part of that and to help build some of those buildings to me, yeah. that makes that, that gets me over that hump of that emotional. If I'm reading about some violence or something like that is remembering those two boys and them standing there by their ancestors name. And so again, that's for me, cause I go up, up and down and it could be daily. Some days I'm not going to talk to a human person at all. <laughs> and, and, and I just need to, you know, it depends on what I've had to read or research and this, that, and other. And I bring it to my own family when I was looking for this third great grandfather. Well, I'm looking for the body. He was killed. They poisoned him for having that slave woman as the head of the household because he wasn't married. And then he's got four babies in the house. And so he got cut out of the will and all of this stuff. So I'm saying, where's the body? 
you know, where's the grave at? <laughs> you know, I know where he's at, you know, and I know where they went. He freed them in their will in 1826 and said, get them out of Virginia and take them to Middlesburg, Pennsylvania, which is in Franklin County. And um, and that's where I'd been stuck for 20 some years trying to find this family. And again, the challenges of that and the biggest thing for me was to go in that other room and tell my mother to read this and to see if she would pick up, you know, on those names. And she did. And again, that excitement, the overwhelming, you know, I grew up going to the homesteads in Michigan, going up to Michigan uh, to the homestead property and um, just the where those people came from, that trial there, not trial, but the path was Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and then Michigan. And that couple that here we got the girl that was enslaved, freed in 1826, they filed a homestead application in 1863 in Benzie County, Michigan. And they were homesteaders of 160 acres. I can tell that story from the time she's born now and take it all away to them being a homestead, you know, family uh, of people of color. In 1863, think about the traveling and the wars going on. Yeah. And you've got these, and I'm going to say these free people of color traveling on the road. So there's a lot, but what solved it for me was the court cases. Library of Virginia had the two chancery court cases, and I was able to unravel everything that was in there and um, piece it together. And, and that's another resource. Look at the court cases, go to your national archives. And again, what's at that local library and historical societies? And it's an adventure. Mm -hmm. That end result is the goal. Hemp. That is to find those yeah. descendants. Uh, I have to go in a second, but I'm just I'm just really awed by the, your whole presentation oh, here. Thank you. And I'm thinking about Walt Whitman saying, I contain multitudes. And all the multitudes you've got running inside are yourself but, but between all the enslaved people and, and the slavers good coffee <laughs> and, and, and and the ancestors you said you've got inside you and so on and i just yeah. like to say that i share a lot of links with you uh, my parents retired from new york area to charlottesville and and i was awed for years by thomas jefferson's life and Monticello, yeah. and i made a lot of pilgrimages there and then i found out more and more about him and i became angered and appalled at his hypocrisy uh and, and that's my loving cousin really really, really. <laughs> yes <I see> now. <laughs> unbelievable what you find on the path of researching yeah. Yeah. yes yes okay. and i agree with you 100 percent so anyway, thank you for that. Yes. And, and thank you for today. I have to go. Thank well. you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Shelley Viola Murphy. She is an educator, author, and lauded professional genealogist and researcher. One of her current projects is to find the descendants of the enslaved laborers who built the University of Virginia. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. 
I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>